continuing our study of the confession. And we're in chapter 22 again. We're in chapter uh, paragraph 1 still. This is part 3 of our study of this chapter of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Uh, There's been a lot of questions. There's been a lot of feedback. There's been a lot of discussion. And so um, that's why we're taking our time through this chapter and we're still not done. What we've uh, considered here in paragraph one is this phrase, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan, nor under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We've been thinking through about what this means. And I'm not going to review everything, but I do want to give you a brief overview of what we've seen the last two two weeks. Um, This concerns the doctrine. It's called the Regulative Principle of Worship, or the RPW for short. for worship to avoid idolatry, which is our natural inclination. We are naturally inclined toward idolatry. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We constantly produce idols because of of our inward sin and corruption. For us to avoid idolatry in how we worship the Lord, and for us to worship in a way that is pleasing to Him, God Himself must reveal how He is to be worshipped. That's what we've talked about. To avoid idolatry, God must tell us how to worship Him. Because the essence of idolatry, the most explicit expression of it, comes out in how we worship. What we think inspires us or connects us to the deity. Right? Or connects us to the divine. Or uh, what we think, you know, is the way in which we we secure the blessings of being connected to the divine. So often as idolatrous, God must tell us, where is he to be found? We've considered that the constitution of the new covenant church is the New Testament. And that that is sufficient for directing worship. Now, what I mean by that is in contrast to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was very specific. You shall not worship me in these ways, God said again and again and again. But since the church is a New Testament reality, the the, uh, pouring out of Pentecost upon uh, the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon the work of Christ, it's the New Testament that must direct our worship. We cannot go to the Old Testament to direct our worship anymore. In fact, the Jews or even the Christians that did that in the New Testament are condemned. Read the book of Galatians. That's what they were doing. The the Old Covenant is not the constitution of the New Covenant church. And if we treat it that way, we're, we're, we're putting in reverse redemptive history. And again, we're chasing, believe it or not, idolatry. We talked about this, like, you know, we're not going to sacrifice a lamb up here. The Old Testament said to do that. But if we do that now, it's blasphemy. 
The New Testament is the New Covenant Constitution. Um, we considered as well that the moral law must be held distinct from the positive law. Different aspects, this goes back to chapter 19. The moral law transcends all of history, all of time. It's always a sin to commit murder. You don't need um, the New Testament, in a sense, to repeat that, even though it does. But positive law is tied to a particular covenant administration. The easiest example would be circumcision in the Old Testament. The only way that Israel was to know that is if God told them that. Same thing with baptism in the New Testament. The only way that, that we are to know to baptize is that God must tell us that. And so the positive law is tied to a particular covenant. We cannot just pull from the Old Testament anything we want. We need positive affirmation of that. Um, we also made a critical distinction between the elements of worship and the circumstances of worship. The elements of worship are the manner or forms or ways in which we worship, like singing, the Lord's Supper, prayer. The circumstances of worship are the incidentals, that there's, there's nothing inherently moral or sinful, not sinful, tied to them. Like whether we meet at 10.30 or whether we meet at 10.45 whether we use a microphone to project our voice or whether we run the heat while we're in here and we light the building. Those are circumstances. Circumstances concern all sorts of things. Just our liturgy is circumstance. Uh, what the pastor wears, what we all wear, circumstance. Whether we use a piano or a guitar or sing a cappello or drums, I don't, circumstance. Instruments, circumstance. That's different than the elements themselves, right? You understand what I mean by that? Hopefully. <laughs> like, we can, we can have singing and praying and preaching in the Lord's Supper that's different. That, those, those are elements. Um, you know, another element might be uh, having an interpretive dance or having a drama up on stage. Or even doing like an altar call, I would argue, is an element. We are not to go beyond the word when it comes to elements. But circumstances differ. What hymns we sing, how we sing them, the instruments used. Circumstances and elements, there's the distinction. So we considered that. We considered ultimately that the regular principle guards us against church abuse. The Roman Catholic Church telling people, you need to do this. You need to make the sign of the cross. You need to douse yourself with holy water before you come in here. You must kneel when you take the sacrament. You're not allowed to, to drink of the cup. These are ways in which the reformers were responding to the Roman Catholic Church abusing worship. Not only for um, going beyond God's word and prescribing stuff that's not in there, but also prohibiting some things that were in there. So the writing principle guards against church abuse. It directs us to what pleases God and builds us up. And it comforts and assures us of God's pleasure. Freeing us to give ourselves to these things in confidence. We can know for certain because we have the New Testament constitution. When we gather in worship, 
right? To devote ourselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' preaching, to the apostles' doctrine, to the breaking of bread, a fellowship, to the prayers. We know for sure, and we can have full, 100% confidence in the soul that when we do that in faith, God promises to bless. We don't have to wonder, like, well, should we be doing something else here? When we gather in worship, is there something missing? Am I missing out on God's blessing? Regular principle frees us to give ourselves to these things in confidence. Um, so just to sum up, review, John Calvin, a uh, couple of quotes. God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. What a great way of summing it up. John Owen, God never allowed the will of the creature to decide how best to worship him. Worshiping God in ways not appointed by him is severely forbidden. In vain do you worship me teaching the doctrines and traditions of men. The principle that the church has the power to institute and appoint anything or ceremony belonging to the worship of God other than what Christ himself has instituted is the cause of all the horrible superstitions and idolatry, of all the confusion, blood, persecution, and wars that have arisen in the Christian world. The reformers pulled no punches here. This is central to their understanding of a faithful church. And really, just to sum this up, it's central to the Reformed tradition as a whole. Because the regular principle is part of every Reformed confession. And this differs the Reformed world from Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopalian, Methodist, Anabaptist, which would be Pentecostal fundamentalist nowadays, and even modern, broad evangelicalism. Um, it is a Reformed distinctive, and it's central to every Reformed confession. It's really what distinguishes a Reformed church, ultimately, from a non-Reformed church, I would argue. Even though I will say, in, in particularly in a lot of Presbyterian circles, there's been, um, well, I'll just, I'll just say that there's a lot of disagreement nowadays um, over what the regular principle looks like and the influence of, of a more charismatic, emotional, or seeker-sensitive type services has infiltrated a lot of different circles. Well... We're going to move on today, but before we do, I just want to leave one more opportunity for you to ask questions or offer a rebuttal or objection regarding any of these things um, that I just covered. What do you guys think? Do you have any questions? Do you have any thoughts, objections? Anything? Louis? Absolutely. Yep. Yep.
Their struggle with grievance, a bitter Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. Uh, in fact, I was talking with a brother about this yesterday. Some, like for example, in some Presbyterian churches, um, it's a big thing to have a choir. Um, some others say, well, a choir is a violation of the regular principle. Because the choir ultimately has, has roots in the Old Testament. Um, of course, there's some Presbyterian churches who, and Baptist churches too, that say instruments. If you have instruments, that's a violation of the regular principle. I've argued that they're a circumstance, but that's a, that's a disagreement. Others, yes, you can only sing songs. Sing songs. Um, I would say that most of the disagreements or distinctions within reform circles center around music, without a doubt. And it's because music in the church has taken on a life of its own in the last generation. Um, even though I will say some, there was... There was uh, disagreement among the particular Baptists, even back in the 17th century over music. Uh, some of them argued, we don't sing at all in church. We shouldn't sing at all, which is really, really odd. But uh, it's a hymn singing controversy. So yeah, that, that's a good point. And I, and I think there's room for some intramural debates there. And, and, I, and I understand that where I... I, I see the importance is really when we start talking about true elements of worship in regards to, do we go beyond the Acts 2.42 type paradigm? Um, that's where I think that some of those, that, that's where the rubber meets the road in my, in my opinion. Jason. All of this is really in the context of like when we're coming together as a congregation to worship. Because again, I keep coming back to Romans 12.1 that worship is more than just there is an element of truth to the fact that worship is private in all in all of life. Uh, but the, the the gist of the New Testament really emphasizes that, that worship primarily is what we do when we come together. Um, yes, offer your life as a living sacrifice. Uh, again, there's a real, uh, but, but again, like, think of the Lord's Supper, for example, and the warnings of the Lord's Supper about eating and drinking judgment upon yourself, lest you be sick or even die. Think of uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 4, where Paul says, when you assemble together and the power of Christ is with you, you are to exercise church discipline on this brother. There is a particular sanctity and holiness of coming together. That, that there must be a distinction between that and the private life because those warnings aren't given in regards to the private life. The presence of Christ isn't spoken of the same way as it is in the dwelling of his people. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I would say there's some truth to the fact that all of life is worship, but I think that uh, if we fail to make that distinction between you know, what is all of life and what is common... Right? Going out on our vocation and you sell homes, for example, that's different than you coming in here and offering worship. If we fail to make that distinction, why even come to church in the first place? We worship at home. So I think that's very, very important to make that distinction and understand that what's happening here is very special. Louis. Actually, I'm going to come back to his question in a second, Jason, but go ahead. Sorry, yeah, so 
Okay, we haven't lost that. That's still happening when we come together. God is in our midst. He's speaking to us. He's, he's giving us his blessing, all these things. Now, it's not like the Old Testament where you can literally see everything, right? But it's still there in the New Testament for us. And I think that's what, for us, I think a lot of uh, Christians now, they don't have that connection. They see it more of, oh, it's more spiritual. Like, that's just all. They have a really special presence of God. It's like, no, that's, that's still true for us. And that's why we ought to be in awe and reverence when we come before God together. Okay, it's a very serious matter. We can't just worship how we want to. Yeah, and I'm preaching on this in the next hour. So let me give you a little preview. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And what's key about this phrase is that the you is plural. You all. Uh, he's talking about the assembly of God's people. That is the new covenant, New Testament reality of what the Old Testament and the spirit, the cloud descending on the temple. It is the gathered presence of the Lord. He's not saying that you individually are God's temple. Again, I'm going to talk about this in the sermon. He's saying you together are God's temple. And this has major ramifications of how we view the coming together of worship on the Lord's Day. But to circle back to you, Jason, it's also important to distinguish the fact that most specifically, this worship that we're talking about is Lord's Day gathering of the church. There are other Let's say a Wednesday night service, for example. Uh, I, I don't believe that the Wednesday night service uh, is the same as the Lord's Day service. The Lord's Day service, it's on the Lord's Day, which is the New Testament command. Um, but also, it has all the elements of worship. We're talking about prayer and scripture, Lord's Supper, preaching, all of that, right? A Wednesday night service, like our Wednesday night prayer meeting or a Wednesday night Bible study, is more like believers getting together in their homes. And so there's, there is some freedom there. Um, I, I believe more freedom there uh, than, than the, strictly the regular principle what it, what it dictates on the Lord's Day. And some people see that as arbitrary. I would, I'm not going to spend the time to defend that. But I think that's important. I mean, think of like covenant students, like what goes on at chapel or what goes on at prayer and praise. Like, that's not bound to the, the restriction of the, Lord's, of the regular principle like the Lord's Day worship is. And uh, there's freedom in that. So, you know, you can do things on Wednesday that would not be proper, I, I believe, on Sunday morning, um, if that makes sense. Again, I'm not going to spend time to defend that, but Lauren? Yes. That's a great question. Um, instruments, I believe, if instruments are to support the singing, and if they drown out the singing or take the emphasis of the singing, I think that they turn ultimately into an element. I also argue as well, and, and some would disagree, some within our Reformed Baptist churches would disagree with me, but I see that playing the instruments without music also runs in that danger as well. Like, we're not here for a performance. We're not here to hear a beautiful music. Even like when the Lord's Supper is distributed, you know, we don't have the piano playing. Because I believe anytime the instruments are playing, we ought to be singing. Because... Any sort of worship that isn't connected to the Word isn't 
really worship. That's what New Testament worship is. Everything is the word prayed, the word sung, the word seen in the Lord's Supper, the, the word preached, the word read. It's, everything is worship. And so anything you start doing where there is no word, I believe we're leaving off New Testament worship. So that's a great point. Singing, I think, that are musical instruments that, that take the place of singing or happen apart from the singing. I think, I think we, we ought to be careful. Sebastian. Yeah, that's one argument that people who don't believe in worship, uh, music, who don't believe in instruments often use, that the person playing can't worship um, because they're focused on the music. Um, I don't know, Cameron, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if that's to put you on the spot. I, I, I'm not musical, so I don't know, um, but I, I have a hard time. You know, that's like saying, like, when I'm focused on preaching, like, I'm not worshiping even though I'm preaching. I, 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 I differ with that, ultimately. Yeah, that's well said. And I would say the same for me. When, when I'm leading, I, you know, it's really nice sometimes when I don't preach and I don't lead because I feel like, wow, I'm really worshiping in a sense or I'm intaking in a way that I don't on normal on Sunday mornings. I, I think that's just inherent in when anybody leads in anything. And it, for me, the same as Cameron, since it takes prayerful preparation and effort on my part to not just stand up there and speak, but to actually receive the word myself and to actually worship in what I'm doing. So I would argue the same is true. If, if any leading in any element of worship, the leader is gonna have to face that reality. That would be my answer. It's a great question though. Well, there's more time for questions, but let me keep going. <laughs> um, I wanna, real quickly run through these things and give you a little bit more on this subject. Um, the confession continues, the object of worship, the place of prayer and worship, the elements of worship, and then the actual location of worship. And then as we'll look at uh, beginning in two weeks, uh, the time of worship. Uh, there's to be a specific time of worship. Um, chapter 2, 22, paragraph 2 says, religious worship is to be given to the to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other, but Christ alone. Um, I don't know if you've thought, but the right of principle directs how the object, uh, uh, the object of our worship is a, uh, an implication of the regular principle of worship. If you've ever thought about that before, it may seem so obvious but 
That's one thing that the, the scriptures or this, this principle guards against because worship and prayer and adoration is not to be given to angels or to the departed saints. Roman Catholicism is in view here. Or to Mary. Right? And we are not to worship apart from a mediator. That's, that's all regular principle stuff. Because, you know, in some sense, you, you could argue like Rome that the Bible doesn't forbid praying to saints. Um, but does it instruct us to pray to saints? Does it instruct us to pray to Mary? Um, does the Bible forbid us not worshiping God apart from a, uh, a worshiping God apart from a mediator? Um, you see, the regular principle directs this. It addresses the fact that God is to be worshipped in God alone, and that if we are to worship Him right, we we must have a mediator. Paragraph three talks about prayer. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Um, It's saying that all unbelievers are to call upon God, All people, I should say, even unbelievers. But that we may be assured our prayer is heard, it must be made in the name of Christ according to His will by the Holy Spirit. And so this acceptable prayer, it is to be with the mind, understanding. It is to be reverent, right? Acknowledging God, who He is and who we are by comparison. It's in with humility, which is a synonym of, of reverence, lowliness. It's with fervency. That means, of course, you know, zeal, or it means um, with intentionality, not just mouthing the words. Remember, the Lord said you know, that the uh, don't pray like the heathens with the heap up mindless repetitions. It is to be with faith and love, the virtues of of faith in our Lord and love for Him. It's with perseverance as well. That means you don't just say it and move on to something else, but we are called to persevere in prayer. And it is to be in a known tongue. But this, is, this raises a question. Is a private prayer language okay according to the confession? Is that what it's saying when it says... When with others in a known tongue. Is this allowing us to pray with a private prayer language? Is the confession giving credence to that idea? Does anybody want to take a gander at that? Richard?
Yeah, Dalton. Absolutely. Dalton, you hit the nail on the head. Richard, there's a definitely truth in that as well. Um, that's important, you know, if you want to understand the confession, you've got to read some history. And if you're just a 21st century American coming in here, it's very easy to see this and say, okay, well, good, I can still practice my private prayer language. Um, but the, lo- the Latin Mass was primarily in view here without a doubt, Um, in the fact that, remember, the Mass in the Roman Catholic Church was in Latin until the 1960s, all right? Just, what, 60 years ago. Up until that point, all their services were in Latin, and nobody could understand it. And so, again, this goes back to Reformers, like, the Word must be present in everything. If the Word isn't present, you don't have worship. Because Christ is the Word. And the Word is the means by which that, that, that we are, for lack of a better term, commune, uh, connected with God. We commune with God through the Word. So, in public prayer, we must pray in a way in which everyone can understand and offer their Amen. And what Richard's point is key here as well. Like, don't, you know, if, if, if this is, you know, if English is the predominant language in our church, don't come in here and pray in Spanish, even if you can speak Spanish. We are to pray in a way in which we can all understand and participate. That's what the confession is saying. When with others in a known tongue. Paragraph four. Continuing on prayer. Prayer is to be made for all things lawful and all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. Ooh, what is this? We are to pray for lawful things, not sinful things. Uh, I hope that's obvious. (laughs) Right? We are to pray for all sorts of men. That means all men without distinction. 1 Timothy 2. Pray for kings and all who are in authority. Right? We pray for all people without distinction. We don't just say we pray for this race. Or we pray for this demographic. Or we pray just for these types of people. We pray for all people without distinction. Not for the dead. Okay, Roman Catholic Church again. Um, is it appointed unto man to die once and after this comes the judgment? There, we do not pray to or for the dead. That is a violation of the regular principle. It's a violation of the Word of God. And we don't pray for those who we know have sinned the sin unto death. What's the sin unto death? Well, 1 John 5, 16 and 17 speaks to this. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is, a, there is sin that does not lead to death. 
What is this talking about? And doesn't it seem a little cruel to not pray for someone? That's what John says. Don't pray for the sin. Those who sin, the sin unto death. Somebody want to raise their hand? an excellent answer. If, I hope you all heard that. I'll repeat it in just a minute. Joshua? How are we supposed to discern that? We can't we don't know the mind of God. And you said like perfectly the church, all the time is for the church. Yeah. Should we ever be like, I, I know that there is a problem where God will get slow and correct but are we we're not really supposed to know what it is Okay, that's a great question. Did I see another hand? Okay. I those are great answers. Great answers. Let me give you my answer. Um, if you want to know what sin is unto death. Read the book of 1 John and read it again and again and again, and it will become clear. Antichrist, he speaks of, who depart from the faith. Apostates who depart from the church. Those who deny Jesus is the Christ. False prophets who have gone out into the world. The sin unto death is the sin of knowing the truth of the Gospel. Maybe receiving it initially, but then turning against it and actively, as Mark said, seeking to tear down the church. I'm going to preach on this. 
The same passage I read earlier. I'm going to preach on this the next hour. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. There is a sense in which, I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong, but there is a sense in which when someone turns away from the gospel, God has given them over. And it's not that we can't pray for them, but John says very clearly, I'm not really saying saying pray for that. In a sense, because this other sin that, that does not lead to death, he's saying through your prayers, God will grant them repentance. But those who turn away, I'm not giving you that same assurance. And so I don't say that you need to pray for that and know that God will answer. And that's hard. That's hard because Joshua's question is, how do we know that? Well, we don't. We can't see their heart. But we can see someone who accepts it and turns away so that they're now attacking it and seeking to destroy down, to tear down the church. They're not promised forgiveness. Yes. In the sense of like, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Right? He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are promises given to believers. You fall into sin, you acknowledge it, God will forgive you. And John is saying, look, you see your brother sinning? They're falling into sin? Pray for them. God will grant them repentance. You see an antichrist who's now turned against the church? Huh. I'm not saying pray for that and God will grant them repentance. Dalton? Also, just like in the context of 1 John, there's a huge emphasis on proof of salvation is the love of the brethren. And so it's a specific command for the brethren as opposed to the reprobate. So. Absolutely. We have the brother, brethren in view and we have apostates in view here. And John's making that distinction. All Christians fall into sin. And there's forgiveness. You turn away from your only propitiation, there is no forgiveness. Same thing that Jesus means when He says that you can blaspheme the Son and the Father, but if you sin against the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. What He's saying is, don't you, don't you realize that the Holy Spirit is the agent of, of redemption? That the only reason you repent and receive forgiveness is through the Spirit's work in you? If you turn away from the Holy Spirit's work, you got nothing left. There's no hope. You can turn away and sin against the Father and the Son, but they don't play the same role as the Spirit in bringing you to repentance and faith. And so you turn away from the Spirit. Jesus says, there's no forgiveness. Same thing. So, we can talk more about this. I've I got I to gotta wrap up. But this is a difficult passage. It's a very sensitive passage for sure. But at least the confession is acknowledging in the sense that, hey, there is something that we need to consider in our prayers when, in relation to the sin leading unto death. We need to take that passage seriously. Chapter 5. 
Paragraph 5, that is. The reading of the Scriptures, preaching and hearing the Word, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, and also the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper are all parts of religious worship to God to be performed in obedience to Him with understanding, faith, reverence, and godly fear, moreover, solemn humiliation, with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions ought to be used in a holy and religious manner. These are the elements of worship. Reading, reading the Word, preaching, hearing the Word, teaching the Word, singing the Word, seeing the Word in baptism in the Lord's Supper. And I will point out here as well, we can not only go astray by adding to God's worship, but also by subtracting things from God's worship as well. Many contemporary churches add to the Lord's worship, but traditional churches can remove things from the worship, and that's dangerous too. Uh, right? We have worship services where there's, you know, 45 minutes of singing and 10 minutes of teaching and preaching. There's a danger there. We have worship services that are all special music and no preaching and teaching. There's a danger there. We have the the Roman Catholic Church saying you're not allowed to have the cup of the Lord's Supper. That's only for the priesthood. There's a danger there. That's violating the regular principle as well. We don't add, we don't take away. It does not mean that every element here must be present every time. We certainly don't baptize every week. But this gives us the full picture here in that we are to give ourselves to these things regularly. So, this is obedience to Him when we do it with understanding, with faith, with reverence, and godly fear. Obviously, think about this. Worship is a serious and holy matter. You know, we are to approach it not with the the exuberance of attending a football game, um, or a concert, or a play, or a movie. We're entering the presence of God, and reverence and awe is required. There's sobriety here. Yes, there's joy. Absolutely. But there's to be reverent joy, godly joy, the fear of God present in our worship. Um, There's this note, i got two minutes. Solemn humiliations with fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions. Thank you, Siri. What is this referring to? Um, the confession speaks of fasting when choosing church officers. Following the book of Acts, the only example of Christians fasting in the New Testament is when they choose church officers. Um, I believe fasting is more tied to the Old Covenant rather than the New. Uh, that's an issue of difference among Christians, but the one example we have of fasting in the New Testament is when choosing church officers. That shows you the importance of fasting, uh, or the, I should say the importance of church officers. Joshua? Yeah, Jesus is speaking in Old Covenant language there, and of Old Covenant worship. Mark? So Jesus' uh, prayer and fasting would not be then considered because he hadn't died yet, and so that would be needed. Yes. Yeah, and, and again, that's where, that's where there's differences. Um, and I, I leave it to individual conscience. 
when Jesus speaks of fasting, is he talking about Old Covenant worship or New Covenant worship? That is a question, and I think that's a question that needs serious consideration because he does talk about Old Covenant worship in the Sermon on the Mount. You can't just take everything and say it's all New Testament. And, of course, yeah, you have the example of him doing it as well, yes. Um, regardless, the example of fasting we see in the New Testament is right before they chose church officers. So there is legitimacy to fasting in the New Covenant. The question just is when and if and how. And, yeah. Thanksgiving. It's coming on Thursday. The confession. Thanksgiving is in the confession. Just like our American practice, the, the confession is saying on special occasions, have days where you devote to um, thanksgivings. So they are given legitimacy to what we're doing as a country, even on Thursday this week. And then to wrap this up, um, no, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship now under the gospel is tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it's performed or towards which it's directed, but God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and in secret, each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly nor willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word of providence calleth thereunto. Um, this concerns the place of worship. It's not tied to a location. Worship is in spirit and in truth. Private and public worship is commanded and permissible, the confession says. Public worship in assembly is more solemn. It's making that distinction and saying public worship is more solemn than private worship. Private worship prepares us for public worship. This is the main event of the Christian life. Our preparation and worship at home is secondary to this right here, ultimately, at the end of the day. Because it's in us together, the Spirit of God dwells. Just said that, we could consider how this changes our perspective of the Christian life, which is very individual and autonomous. But the key phrase here, public worship, is not to be carelessly or willfully neglected or forsaken, unless providentially hindered. And this leads us right next to the next paragraph, which is the time of worship, which is next week, or in two weeks. We have this as part of our membership vows. That you're here on Sunday morning, unless you're providentially hindered. That means that some way that you cannot control or circumstances that prohibits you being here. Because worship is a solemn assembly of God's people and ought to never be neglected. All right, well, that's finally, I think we made it through. Um, our worship flows out of what we believe about the Scriptures as sufficient. What we believe about God, He is not a human. We don't determine what pleases Him. What we believe about us, we are sinful and ignorant by nature. What we believe about the Gospel, how does God apply the Gospel to us to sanctify us? What we believe about the church, that this is Christ's body, that it's corporate, that God's presence is here in a holy way. And what we believe about what is happening in worship, that God is the actor doing this work among us. We're not just bringing all things to Him. He is descending and giving and dispensing His gifts to us. 
And so every aspect of our worship is directed by God in His Word. The object of the worship, the outward manner of the worship, the inward manner of the worship. None of this should be neglected, that we may please Him, that we may avoid sin, that we may keep in step with the Spirit, which is the purpose of our worship ultimately, sanctification and the glory of God. All right, we don't have time for questions, uh, but we'll pick back up in a few weeks, and so you can bring your questions in. Uh, Let's close in prayer.